Would you please pray with me? Father, thank you for this opportunity to feel your love in a, in a way that reminds us that we are significant to you, that you are mindful of us. I pray your spirit would be at work as we look at this psalm, these beautiful words, and that you would be glorified through them. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever felt insignificant as you look up into the sky and see the expansive universe, especially at night with all the stars out there and the, the moon and the planets? And, and we're, we can only see our galaxy, but we're told there are millions of galaxies out there beyond ours. Our family really enjoys stargazing. Sometimes on a clear, warm summer night, we'll just turn all the lights off in the house and go out onto the deck and, and just look up into the sky and marvel at the stars that are out there. And sometimes we can see planets and sometimes even the northern lights. During uh, the last of August, there are often meteor showers predicted, and we love to just be outside and see who can find the first falling star. Sometimes we're up in the Adirondacks and we're on the lake there and the reflection of the stars on the water is just so beautiful. It's, it's breathtaking, really awe-inspiring. The beautiful display of stars, the moon, it reminds us how massive the universe is. It's just so big. There's so much out there and how creative God is and how small we are. When the Hebrew people wanted to, be, wanted to use an expression for something that was just too big to be counted, they often used the metaphor of the multitude of stars in the sky. When I think about the massive numbers and this idea that God put us here right now in this little place, it seems mind-boggling. And it does sometimes make me feel a little insignificant. But then I read the marvelous words of Psalm 8. And I'm reminded of God's mindfulness. Now, scientists tell us that there are 100 billion stars out there. And that's just in our galaxy, in the Milky Way galaxy. Have you ever seen a billion of anything? Uh, I haven't. Sometimes I exaggerate when I talk. And I know the other day I said to Bob, there must be a billion mosquitoes out here. And we were out kayaking on the lake, and I said to Angie, there's, there's a billion minnows over there in the water, but I have no idea what a billion is. I have a little visual for you here. There are 200 marbles. I counted them out in this jar. And I've got four more jars. And if all five of these jars were filled with 200 marbles, we'd have 1,000 right here. Now, it would take 999,999 more baskets filled with marbles like this to get to a billion. Can you imagine that stacked all through? It wouldn't even fit here, maybe not even in this room. And then we'd have to multiply that by 100 in order to just get the number of stars in our galaxy. And then scientists tell us that there are 125 billion more galaxies out there. So if each of those galaxies have 100 billion stars, it's just an incomprehensible number. I don't know how they know that, but it's just mind-boggling. Dick Harder is pretty good with numbers, and he told me that that number, 100 billion times 125 billion, 
is 12 sextillion 500 quintillion, or 1.25 times 10 to the 22nd power. So 125 with 20 zeros after it. Just, just an absolutely huge number. Now, if we were given the job to divide the stars up evenly among each person on Earth, and we were to name our share of the stars, we would have to name a trillion stars. But listen to this. Psalm 147 tells us, God has determined and counts the number of stars, and he calls them each by name. Isn't that remarkable? Dr. David Alexander, before he went to be with the Lord, would put in a request every now and then when I would come and do a message up at the nursing home. He would say, Lori, preach from the Psalms. The Psalms are filled with challenges and encouragement and They're really great for people like me because sometimes we don't feel like we're in control anymore. And it reminds us that the God of heaven and earth is still in control, that he loves us, and that everything will be okay because of that. The Psalms remind us of his love, even when we don't understand what's happening in our lives. The Psalms show us that it's okay to complain to God when things aren't going how we think they should, and that he doesn't mind our questions when we don't understand what's happening. But the Psalms also inspire us to praise God for his majesty, his power, his creativity, and his abundant love. There are other places in the Psalms where the beauty of creation is presented, especially the majesty of the night sky. As I read these verses from the Psalms, enjoy the beauty of our universe as presented to us from pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope. Psalm 104 reminds us of the greatness of the Lord. He wraps himself in light as with a garment and stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on the waters. The moon marks off the seasons and the sun knows when to go down. In Psalm 136, the writer says, Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Who, by his understanding, made the heavens and spread out the earth upon the waters. He made the great lights, the sun to govern the day, and the moon and the stars to govern the night. Psalm 147, again, says he determines the number of the stars, and he calls them each by name. Great is our Lord, and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. Psalm 148 reminds us to praise the Lord from the heavens and to praise him in the heights above. All the heavenly hosts, the sun, the moon, and the shining stars, praise him in the highest heavens. You waters above the skies, let them praise the name of the Lord. For he commanded and they were created. He set them in place forever and ever and gave a decree that will never pass away. It goes on to say, his splendor is above the earth and the heavens. King David must have been totally awestruck by the night sky as he asked this important question. When I consider the heavens, 
the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Perhaps he was feeling a little insignificant at the time. How could the God of the universe, the God that created such a vast array of stars, the sun, the moon, the planets, everything we see in the heavens, how can he care for each individual person? This question David asks gives us a lot to think about. What is man that God would be mindful of him? The word mindful is a very interesting word in the original Hebrew. It's the word zekar. It means to meditate upon, to think about, to pay attention to, to remember, to recollect, mention, to declare, to proclaim, or to commemorate. In the Old Testament, this word is used many times, specifically when God talks about remembering his covenant with his people and his promise in that covenant to preserve them. The word mindful has also been interpreted to mean that God has paid attention or paid heed to man, and as a result, he will bless man richly. We also see the word mindful used in a completely opposite way when we consider the story of Jonah. Specifically, chapter 2, verse 8, Jonah uses that same word, zekar, only quite a differently, different way. This time he says, he talks about man being mindful of God. This is what Jonah said when he prayed to God from inside the big fish. He says, when my life was ebbing away, I was mindful of you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Here in Psalm 8, David is saying, when I look at the great wonder of creation, all that your hands have made, the vastness of the sky and the evidence of your majesty and greatness, why would you care about us humans? Why would you remember us? What a huge contrast, that vastness of the universe versus an individual life, a man or a woman. The Hebrew word man or humanity that David used in the original writing describes man as weak, as impotent, as frail, which is interesting because David could have chosen different words for man, words that were just maybe more generic or words that would represent a human individual as being strong or powerful. But David chose to use the word that he used to emphasize human frailty and weakness, intentionally stressing that contrast between the all-powerful God and the fragile mortality of the human condition. So what is man? If we allow science to answer this question, we would be told that human beings are the highest form of life within the animal kingdom, a bipedal primate with a highly developed brain belonging to the class mammalian, homo species and genus, homo sapien and genus and species. Some scientists might say a product of millions of years of evolution, tiny creatures in an immense universe. Technical answers like this, although they may contain significant facts in terms of scientific research and medical advances. They're clearly inadequate when someone is trying to understand the reason for his or her existence. It may even bring us to the brink of despair or cause us to drown in our own insignificance. But thankfully, David answered his own question in a very non-scientific way. He understood another dimension of our existence. 
David recognized that, although small in comparison to the whole universe, God made man a little lower than the angels. In the eyes of God, you are important. Even though our size may be only halfway between an atom and a planet, in God's sight, we're almost heavenly beings. We are fearfully and wonderfully made and possess the image and likeness of God himself. The creation narrative in Genesis 1 matches up pretty closely to the words in Psalm 8. It's pretty thematically similar as we see God calling the world and all the parts that he created into existence. At the climax of his work, he made human beings in the very image of himself, and he called them good. Rather than suggest that man is but an insignificant speck in the universe— Psalm 8 reveals that the Lord has bestowed honor upon us who are made in his very image. Because we are created in the image of God, we share a unique relationship with him. It bonds us to the creator, gives us responsibility for everything that he's made and for all of his creation. As we search for significance in this world and struggle to find our own worth and wonder, is our life Doing anything that matters? Why are we here? We find the answer to that here in Psalm 8. As Dr. Carl Schultz puts it, when we turn to Psalm 8 in our struggles of identity and purpose, what we find is not a scientific response, but a hymn of praise. It is an expression of faith, an act of worship. It takes place in the temple, not the laboratory. It springs from the soul, not from the mind. It is wonderment, not wondering. It is awe, not assessment. It is exaltation, not experimentation. It is affirmation, not analysis. It is celebration, not curiosity. It is in the biblical view of man that we find our identity as we focus on the nature and the character of God. According to King David, each and every one of us has significance and value. It's very interesting to read in the book of Job, he actually asks the exact same question that King David asked only hundreds of years earlier. In chapter 7, verse 17 of Job, we find him in the middle of a huge crisis in his life. Everything is going wrong. And this is the questions that he asks God. He says, what is man that you make so much of him? That you give him so much attention, that you examine him every morning and test him every moment. Will you never look away from me or let me alone, even for an instant? If I have sinned, what have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my offenses and forgive me of my sin? Here, Job is distressed that God seems to be paying so much attention to him, scrutinizing, testing, and punishing him. Yet, if he could have only known what was going on in the background, if he could have seen what had happened before all of this crisis happened into his life, he might feel a little differently about God's constant remembering of him. Instead of feelings of insignificance, Job wished God would not be so mindful of him. Yet the story of Job proves that God is more than just a little interested 
and each individual life. He is deeply and actively involved in everything that's happening to Job. And as we later discover, God remains faithfully attentive to him throughout his trials and his future restoration. He's deeply and actively involved in our lives, in your life as well. He will continue his faithfulness to us as we trust in him. Now, David, on the other hand, when he asked that question about 3,000 years ago, he also answered it by uttering a strong statement of praise, responding to God's great majesty and the form of worship. He was thrilled that the same God that made the gigantic galaxies, although he didn't know what a galaxy was at the time, and the multitude of stars, he's loving and caring enough to know him and to be actively involved in his day-to-day life. David's answer to his own question comes in the form of grateful recognition of the creator and the role that humanity has been given by the creator. You made man a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you crowned him with glory and honor. Humanity has significance because we are the masterwork of the sovereign creator. He crowns us with glory and honor. He elevates us to the position of overseer over everything that his hands have made. He put everything under us to steward. David had a clear understanding of his identity as a creature, a creation of God, who not only made the heavens and the earth and all they contain, but he made and cares for each person. Listen to David's words in Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. When I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar and discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is even on my tongue, you know it completely. You created my inmost being, and you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. There's one more reason why we know that God is mindful of us. It's the most important reason at all of all. And it's pointed out in the New Testament. The writer of the book of Hebrews quotes Psalm 8 and chapter 2 of the book of Hebrews. And he applies the term that David uses, son of man, to Jesus Christ. He gives these verses a messianic application. The ultimate fulfillment of David's words came true with the life of Jesus Christ. He tells us proof of God's mindfulness toward us is in the life of his son, who for a time was made a little lower than the angels, but is now crowned with glory and honor. It is through his life and his death that God has proven that he is most mindful of us. This psalm is understood by the writer of Hebrews to refer to the incarnation. The scriptural context of Psalm 8 emphasizes that God's glory is not only evident in the marvels of creation, but also in his plan of redemption. Jesus Christ himself identified with humans and is the ultimate proof of God's mindfulness of us. God's majesty is present in the splendor of the world as well as in the suffering of his Son. 
in our sinful state, he made a way for us to once again be able to stand in the presence of God and to once again become the image of God. Through the sacrifice of Jesus, through his death, by God's grace, he would bring many to glory. Creation and redemption are held in Scripture as two places where God's handiwork is most powerfully evident. David asks, what is man? Without the presence of God in our lives, we may think we are nothing. But the Son of Man has allowed us to be seen as holy. God didn't forget us. He is mindful of his covenant with us. Because he is mindful, he gave Abraham a promised son. Because he is mindful, he brought Israel out of Egypt and into Canaan. Because he is mindful, he brought his people back from the exile. Because God is mindful, he fulfilled his promise to David that his son would rule on his throne forever. Because he is mindful, he made man a little lower than the angels. Because he is mindful, he sent Jesus Christ, his son, to save us and to be crowned with glory and honor. How awesome to consider God's spirit at work and the forming of every star, every planet, every sun and moon and and every galaxy out there. Things that are counted in light years because they're so far away. All those made for his glory. His infinite power called into existence everything we see around us. We are allowed to see a glimpse of his goodness, his wisdom, power, and grace through everything he created. Psalm 8 is not so much about the vastness of the universe or the power and might of our creator or the seeming insignificance of man in comparison to all this. But Psalm 8 is about the divine grace and love of God. That God calls us to himself. That he forgives our sin through the great exchange of his glorious son and then exalts us to inherit a place in his kingdom. It's also wonderful. He redeems us to himself to be another of his great works, to glorify him along with all creation. I will close with David's first and last words to us in Psalm 8. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Would you please pray with me? Father, thank you for your mindfulness of us. Thank you that your handiwork is so evident when we look around us. It's evident in your majestic creation, the beauty of the night sky and the beauty of the day and all that we see and hear. And it's evident in your plan of salvation. We give you praise today. And we ask that with all the other things that you created, that we would find a way to bring you glory and honor. In your precious holy name, amen.